So anyway, I'm still John. I'm still a compulsive eater. I want to thank Ben for asking me, although since I nominated Ben for secretary and I got asked on to be his first speaker, everybody's going to be a quid pro quo. <laughs> but no, and it's, it's been a long time since I've spoken here, I think, or a decent amount of time. And uh, this is my, one of my home meetings. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I go around and I lead retreats around the country and I'll tell people I'm, I'm a kitchen sink. And they're like, oh, the kitchen sink, the famous kitchen sink meeting. And I, I always say, yeah, I'm the guy who helps make the coffee that keeps that meeting right. Running, damn it. <laughs> you can lose the greeters, but keep that coffee coming, you know. So um, I'm not going to talk too much about my food log today because I figure you all know how to how to eat and you don't need much help with that. Um, but I will talk about you know my journey through recovery. Um, uh, just to give you some numbers, I've been coming to OA and AA for 36 years. Uh, I have 22. I have 22 years of absence in this program, 36 in the other program, and uh, you'll notice that that 36 and 22 number is different. And so, obviously, there is relapse involved in my my story. And so, you know, hopefully, I'll be able to talk about that a little. Uh, what I can tell you, if you're new or if you're in relapse, this program works. All, especially here today, you just have to look around the room. There's plenty of people. When I first came here from, from I, I moved from Connecticut, one of the first meetings I came to was Kitchen Sink. And at the end, for the people on the podcast, you don't know that we do a countdown. We say how many people with a year, how many people with five years. And I, my mind blow, was blown when I saw how many people had 10, 15, 20, 30 years. But it does prove that this works. This works if you work it. And... You know, but the thing that, that the, the gift that you get, it, you know, it's in this book. It's in the, you know, the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, one of the things we hear at every meeting is the ninth step promises, which talk about how you then will be able to you know, navigate life once the food's down, how to navigate life, which is it's hugely important for me on a daily basis. But when I was coming in, all I wanted to do was figure out how to stop eating and, and to deal with the food and, and the, the, you know, all of that. And, um, and so for me, the mo- most important thing was, was not the ninth step promises when I came in. It was the tenth step promises, which come on the, on the page, further down the page from the end of where the ninth step promises. I'd just like to read them. And we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we will recoil from it as from a hot flame. We will react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see how our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are, neither, we are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It doesn't exist for us. We are neither cocky nor we are afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react. And here's the gotcha part. So long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And that's, you know, fit spiritual condition. Three words. Easy, right? But that's the guts of all this program. That's the hardest part. And, but, you know, I can say it's really true today. You know, you know and you can, you can get to a point where you are in a position of neutrality. Food is really not a problem anymore. To the point where it's easy. The trouble is that to get to where it's easy, you've got to go through the part where it's hard first. And you've got to get through it without going back into the food. And, and that's the thing that's not easy. Um, uh, you know, and that was the thing. is When I was going through my relapse, I just this was so hard. 
But the problem was I was going through the hardest part over and over and over again and not realizing, you know, if I kept at it, it would get easier. And and that's what they promised me, you know. Um, So anyway, I'm just going to give you a quick background. I'm a child of two different alcoholics, two different Irish alcoholics. I know, Irish alcoholics, who who would have imagined? Um, um, And they split up at an early age, but I went back and forth. And I got what they they say in in modern jargon, I got bad modeling (laughs) about how to deal with emotions. Well, first of all, we didn't deal with emotions. You know, we never, you know, we talked like crazy. We talked talked about politics and sports, but talk about emotions, how we feel, that didn't, didn't exist. And... So I grew up with a lot of crazy stuff, like like insane things would happen in the house, and the next day everybody's walking around, everything's fine, fine, you know, pay no attention to the car sticking out of the front door, uh, everything's fine, or you know things like that, and and that denial, the not talking about emotions, and then the worst modeling was given to me. If you're a little kid and you watch parents get upset, and then they say, I need a Something. I need a drink. I need a pill. I need a cigarette. I need a this. You get the idea as a little kid. Oh, if I don't like how I'm feeling in here, there's something out there I can put in here that'll make it eat better. And that's what I got at a very early age. And I took to it. I took to my first addiction, which was which was food, you know, and um, and it. It, it did make it easier. I can say that I had a crazy childhood, moved around a lot. I'm, I remember I was at an ACA meeting once and the speaker was like, well, we moved like six times by the time I was in the sixth grade. And I, I actually turned to the person next to me and I said, I'm almost positive I moved six times in the sixth grade. You know? And swear to God, that is true. You know? and, and so there was only one thing there for me, comfort, and one consistent thing, and that was food. Because no matter where you go, there's junk food. Food somewhere, right? I think you go to the top of Mount Everest, there's a 7-Eleven right near the top. You can find stuff, and it it soothed, and it calmed me, and it made things better. But of course, just like everybody else here, I didn't like the effects, which was to be the fat kid. And I grew up as the fat kid, and I'll tell you, I've been a fat kid, I've been a fat adult. Fat adult is better, because kids are brutal. Kids are brutal to you both verbally. I got beat up for being the fat kid, and all that stuff. And then the other thing is that I was also given this wonderful brain. I, I got a very good brain that's a totally not my, you know, God's gift to me. And the thing is, when you feel like a piece of garbage about yourself physically, you, you go for any little thing that will make you feel a little better about yourself. And for me, it was my brain. So I would have to make sure as soon as you met me, and I mean, this happened years into sobriety, I would have to make sure you knew exactly how smart I was as soon as I could make sure you knew. You know, correct your English. Nothing endears you to your fellow man, like <laughs> correcting their English, right? But that's what I would do. And, and the thing was, yeah, it made me feel better, but it just estranged me from my fellows that much more. And, and so, you know, until I came into program, there was, you know, there was two subsets in the world. There was the world and there was John, you know, and I couldn't, I felt like an absolute alien walking around on earth and thought everybody else had it and, 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 and I didn't. And I'm going to really fast forward. I went through high school. I didn't date. I, I didn't go to a prom. I hung out with all the other geeks who nobody liked. Um, after after high school, uh, I found alcohol. Okay, and I have to just talk a little about it, just to, in context of something. Um, 
I was never going to drink because you're a little brainiac kid. You read about, oh, children of alcoholics become alcoholics too, so I'm not going to ever be like my parents. But I was so terribly shy around the opposite sex, okay? And there is a TV show on that talks about a guy who has to drink to be able to talk to women. That was literally me. And so I wanted, you know, I'm a hormone-filled kid, and I want to talk to the opposite sex. So a group of from work were going out, so I went and I found alcohol, and all of a sudden I got calmer. I liked myself a little more. I could talk to the opposite sex, and that this was my magic elixir. And uh, what happened next is I went zero to 60 with that. I got the food dropped off. And so I started losing weight because I would, I just, I, I found the way that worked for me, and this is not a recommendation. Don't, don't eat for seven days and then binge for a night and then don't eat for seven days and binge for a night. And if you're a 19 year old boy, you will lose weight. It's not particularly healthy. But the other thing I could look back at that and realize, you see, I knew even then there was no dimmer switch on this disease. There was off and there was on. And the only thing I could do to get a normal weight was to keep it off as long as I could humanly stand it and then go on for a night. So I did lose weight. I did it through crazy exercise too. I would literally run until I passed out along the side of the road. I'd literally sort of come to along the side of the road. Or, you know. And, and so when I hear people talk about this is a matter of willpower, hey, I can run until I pass out. You know, This is not a matter of willpower. This is a disease. I really do get that these days. Um, so anyway, uh, I went. I had my first relationship. Uh, that did, and then my second relationship took over. Uh, I, I got involved with a guy named Jack Daniels. Uh, <laughs> essentially, the relationship went away. The, the the alcohol went zero to sixty, and then of course I got back into the food with the alcohol. So I always joke I was fat, then I was a drunk, and then I was a fat drunk. You know, and. So I ended up coming into AA in, uh, I was in rehab at Christmas of 1980, you know, because uh, John Lennon was shot on December 8th of 1980, and I pretty much cranked until I went into rehab, because it just proved what a horrible world this was, you know, at least my view of it. And, and, you know, there's, there's nothing better than to be in, in, in Christmas in rehab. We should write a song, Christmas in rehab. Um, uh, <laughs> But I came, I, and, and they actually threw me out of rehab. You know you're in trouble when they're throwing you out of rehab. No, they did, because I was this know-it-all smart-ass, and, and, and I had an answer for everything, and they just said, hey, we need the bed, dude, go. You know, you got more field testing to do. And it was the best thing they could have ever done for me, you know. I hear, I hear sometimes in this program, they keep coming back, keep coming back. I sometimes think maybe people have to go field test to hit the bottom where they're willing to go to any lengths. And... Uh, I, I ended up coming in AA and, and I went, because they were taking us to meetings and I went back to the, I, I was going to show them, I went out and drank right after they threw me out, but I came back the next morning through, I don't know what, God's grace, uh, to the meeting, the Sunday meeting, and, and I'm putting away chairs at the end of the meeting, I couldn't tell you what happened at that meeting, but I can tell you what happened afterwards, I'm putting away chairs and we had the steps and the traditions up on these window shades on the wall of this club. And I'm, and I'm talking to this guy. He became my first sponsor. And I said, I can't be part of this religious program. And he's like, it's not a religious program. It's, it's a spiritual program. And I'm like, no, it isn't. And I pointed to the steps. God, God, him with a capital H, him. You know? And he looked at it and he looked at me and he said, okay, leave it out. And, you know, it's like one of those blazingly simple things that locked me up. What? He said, look, right now your disease is looking for any reason to head out the door. What could be better than that? Just keep coming back. Nobody, you can be 110 in this program 
and stay sober. Nobody's going to tell you you ever have to believe anything. Nobody's going to tell you what to believe. All we're going to ask is keep an open mind. Just, just keep an open mind. And the fact that he said it that way made all the difference for me because I was so paranoid at that point. I've heard, uh, I've heard old timers tell newcomers, oh, keep coming, you'll get the God thing. That would have sent me out just as fast. I'd have been, oh my God, they're like Scientologists, they're going to get me, you know. <laughs> but because he said, just keep coming back, it allowed that little crack in the door, a little mustard seed that maybe I could find something, you know. And um, I kept coming back. Um, I ended up having a slip in that program, and when I came, and, and oh, so what happened? I, I I got sober. I started doing the crazy dieting again, and I think that didn't help. And I ended up having a slip in that program. And when I came back, I knew I needed OA because you know you come to one program, you start hearing about all the others you're supposed to be in, right? <laughs> you know, what's that? If you're not in three programs, you're in denial, right? Um, uh, that. Um, I knew I had to come to OA because as soon as I heard of OA, the, 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 the thing clicked. Oh, of course, this is why this great brain that's helped me in so many areas of my life is useless with this. You know, knowledge of our disease alone won't cure us. And so I went to OA and I fell in love with OA immediately. I, I, I got hit on the head with the, the, abs- the wand from the abstinence fairy. You know, I, I just all of a sudden, let me just mention, by the way, when I, you know, all the time until I came into the program, I didn't want to be fat. I tried every diet in the world, you know. And when I first came in, I would say I tried every diet and they didn't work. And I looked back later and said, no, I tried every diet and they all worked. They all worked once. Because I'm a good little student. You give me the course syllabus, tell me this is what i got to do, I'll follow it. The trouble is I've also got the brain of an addict that then immediately, after it works for a while, starts looking for the loopholes. And then it doesn't work, you know. So I came to OA, I fell in love because it, all of a sudden everything made sense. I, I, I was doing well, and then my sponsor left program, and I'm like, oh, I don't need one, I got one in the other program, and I know what I'm doing. And I, you know, we had the, the gray sheet had just gone out, so they had the old dignity of choice, and I had my food plan, and I knew, this is what I gotta do, I'm a compulsive eater, I got it, you know? And then, I got into, um, I had been a, mag- I'd been a, a magazine editor, and I got into stand-up comedy. And uh, I was trying to do comedy at night. I was either going to New York or Boston. And, and then I'm working during the day, and all of a sudden I have no time for meetings. And, you know, but I know what I'm doing. I got it. I'm a compulsive eater. I got my food plan. That's it. It's fun. Well, you can imagine how that went, you know. Eventually, uh, you know, that fell apart. And... Um, and, and because it's, it's going to and if that sounds familiar, it's in the big book. You know, Bill Wilson, for years it took him to get sober and he couldn't, under, you know, he didn't really grasp he was an alcoholic. But then he did grasp he was an alcoholic and still ended up pounding on the bar asking how did it happen again? So my thing was an absolute parallel to Bill Wilson's. And so it, I came back and, and, and started to try and, and do some more work. Um, the other thing I'll say is I, I haven't. I should have mentioned my qualification. I'm a compulsive eater. Uh, I am. A, a, I have been a bulimic. I have been an exercise bulimic. And for this tiny little sliver of time, I was. A, I was an anorexic. And I'll tell you what that was about. It, uh, I came in OA. Pretty much, other than that, that very short time when I got. I, I um, you know was you know got to a normal weight before, while I was drinking. I had never been at normal weight, and and so I had this idea. And if anybody's been heavy their whole life, the phrase "gold weight" almost like you can almost hear angels. Gold weight, you know. <laughs> you know, there's, there, you know, and 
Um, and I had this idea of a goal weight. And so I come into OA and I start working a program and I got a goal weight. I get to the goal weight. And in my head, I'm, as soon as I get the goal weight, I'm going to like myself. I'm going to be like James Bond with a hello, darling. You know, with women. I don't know. Somehow the goal weight was going to give me a British accent. Um, <laughs> women were going to be clawing at me as I walked by. And you know what happened? I got the goal weight and I got the goal weight. And nothing happened. I didn't like myself any better. I didn't, you know, any of that stuff. And so, genius that I am, says, well, that must not be the right weight. <laughs> so I lose another 10 pounds, and still I don't like myself anymore. And so then I lose another 10 pounds, and people are coming up going, are you all right? <laughs> you know, dude, eat something, you know. And I can say for me, I had to do that. I had to do that because you'll always hear people say, there's no number on a scale that's going to make you like yourself. And I needed to see that that was absolutely true, you know, that there was no number I was going to like myself. It's an inside job, and it didn't matter what weight I was or how many ribs you could see. I didn't, you know, and, and uh, you know, I did eventually lose the weight, but trust me, the weight up here, it took a lot longer. I was a fat guy for a long time, even though it was at a normal weight. And um, so... I was doing well. I ended up getting married. I was doing comedy. My, my ex-wife was doing comedy. We moved out here, and my program fell apart. It just fell apart. Uh, and I, was, I started on this horrible relapse cycle. And I call it a relapse cycle because it would be a week on, a week off. Two months on, two months off. It was like constant thing, and it was miserable. And I became the, the master of... OABS, you know, um, all these excuses of, well, you know, um, uh, I'm praying for the willingness, you know. I was at a convention once, I heard the lady who was a speaker say, you know, when it comes to addiction, willingness is highly overrated, <laughs> you know, because it's really about pain. You can't really will willingness, but you can get to it through pain. And, and I would do all these, oh, well, I'm, I'm redefining my abstinence, you know. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I said that. My abstinence, so, so it's now it's whatever I'm eating, right, so that I can say I'm abstinent, you know. And uh, one day, I'm, I'm like, sitting for about the fifth time, I'm redefining my abstinence, and the thought popped in my head, no, you're not, you've broken your abstinence. You're just redefining your honesty. That's what's going on, you know. And, um, and, and yeah, and so I was doing all these things, you know, and... What I can look back now and know, it was my disease. My disease was doing that to me. My disease takes everything I've got, all the stuff. I mean, you got to know when I'm in this relapse, I'm in program for 14 years. I'm going to three to five meetings a week, and my disease just has its claws into me. And it's using now perfectly good program slogans as to why I need to keep eating. You know, really, no, you know, perfectly good things. Well, don't beat yourself up, you know. You know, I remember I, I, at the old kitchen sink meeting and at, at the log cabin, I would come in, I'm, I, I ate again, but I'm not going to beat myself up. And, and then again, I, I ate again, but I'm not going to beat myself up. And this lady who was an old timer came up and said, do you ever consider eating was beating yourself up? And that was like, that was uh, between the eyes. But what I know is that my disease got up every day when I was in my relapse with one job. And that job was to get me to kick the can down the road one more day on putting the food down. You know, and I think that's the most important thing. And it was so hard for me to get. And, and I ended up going to another program for a while. And, and through, I believe, grace, I, got, I, I was given abstinence. I believe you don't get abstinence. You can't will it. It's a gift. It's a gift that you get. But I'm the person who can throw it away. You know, no higher power has ever grabbed an abstinence away from anybody. I give it away. And, uh, and so 
it took me years of looking back as to what that relapse was about. And I think it was two things. I didn't understand powerlessness and I really didn't understand how my disease, how my disease was just intertwined in my head. Um, the powerlessness, I would, I would say, you know, I'm a good little student. You tell me I'm powerless, I'll get up at meetings. I'm powerless over food and then I go eat. <laughs> and then I come back. I'm powerless over food and then I'd eat. And I'm powerless to eat. Well, how powerless did I really think I was? Was I saying, oh, the hell with OA, I'm leaving, I'm never coming back? No, I was thinking in the back of my head, when I'm done, I will come back and I will get abstinent again. Why? Because I had the empirical proof that I'm powerful over the food. If you've ever broken your abstinence and gotten it back, and I had done that many times, you, even if you want to try and tell yourself you're powerless, there's part of you that goes, no, I'm not. Look, I broke my abstinence, I got it back. And that was the part it took me years to get, is that, I, yes, I, I am powerful over the food in the small picture. But when I pull the camera back, I used to, I was a film major, we get back to that establishing shot, uh, in the long term, I wasn't. I wasn't. Because I knew if I ate, I could eventually grind that train to a halt again. I might have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get a new sponsor, do a lot of writing. But eventually, the food would get put down. The trouble is, the second that food was down, the clock was ticking on when I was going to go out again because it was an option, you know. When I came in, I used to always hear, we don't eat no matter what. He said, rah, rah, rah. I heard somebody at, at the Hill Street meeting say once, her sponsor said, if you're a compulsive eater and you've made food an option, it's always going to be the only option. It's always going to be the path of least resistance. You know, who, if you've got, well, I have to go through emotional pain or eat something that A, you like, and B, makes you feel better, it's a no-brainer. And that's what powerlessness had to become for me. It came, my, my absence, food cannot be an option. I can enjoy it. You know, I can have it at a meal, but it can't be an option. And the other thing was I didn't understand my disease. I, today, I always say my disease is like the world's best salesman. You know, if you think of a salesman who's really good and they're smooth and they're likable and they like their product and they know you like the product, which is the food, right? And they're sitting there 24-7 trying to make the sale to you. Now, imagine if that, that salesman could also read your mind. You know, imagine if you went in to buy a car and that salesman could read your mind. So anything you were going to say no to the salesman, that salesman's got the answer, right? And that's what made that disease so hard. And then the thing is, if that salesman made the sale, then he would put his arm around me and say, hey, you know what? This was your idea. No, it wasn't. I'm going to three to five meetings a week. I'm a delegate at Intergroup. If I really wanted to just eat, I wouldn't be here. But at that exact moment of impulse, it, can, it, it really convinces me of that. And to me, that's what the, this disease is. It's the insanity of this disease. And in, ways, in some ways, I don't like the word insanity because it, it's very pejorative in a way. You know? But I heard a definition that I think hits it perfectly about this disease. The, the, the definition is of insanity in this one dictionary says, a state of mind that prevents normal perception. Which, if you think about it, with the food. I've got a great brain. I really do. Again, a gift. I didn't do anything. I, and this great brain gave me a great decision maker. The trouble is my disease takes the, this, the stuff about the food, the data, and corrupts the data about the food. And you can't make a good decision if you don't have good data. And that's what the insanity of the disease is. And so I had to be able to, to, to look for something outside of myself. And, and in the beginning... You know, I did a talk for this Vision for You phone group in which, if you haven't heard of Vision for You phone group, it's right. Um, I, I did one called Working the 15 Steps. And what that was about was that I think the first three steps are different if you're just coming in trying to get abstinent as opposed to being around for a long time. Because for me today, the first three steps are about I'm powerless over people, places, and things. 
I'm still nuts, can't trust my brain, and I need a higher power that I call God that'll help me. In the beginning, my first three steps for newcomers, I always say, is one, you had your life to do this, ain't worked yet, right? (laughs) Number two, look around the room. A lot of people doing what you can't do. Number three, go ask one of them to be your sponsor and then take direction. You know, the problem, and to be willing to take my brain out of the decision making process. Because, I'll wrap up, this, the recovery from this disease is about surrender. And the trouble is, my with my disease is involved, it wants to negotiate. You know, surrender isn't about negotiation, it's about surrender. And so for me, the best thing I did was come in and ask somebody, hey, tell me what to do. I've been messing it up all this time, and that was the start of my journey. So I'm out of time, and thanks for letting me share. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember that if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. And hopefully somebody will ask me about steps 4 through 12 because I ran out of time. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll get you in the check. Yes. Thank you. Um, great love and great pain are only disciplinarians. Uh, mm-hmm. I heard you talk about pain. Mm-hmm. I heard you talk about respect. I didn't hear you talk about love. Could you explain about how love has been a part of the program, people in the program with respect has affected your recovery? Yeah, sure. Uh, the question was about uh, both pain and love and how love has worked in my program. Well, it's, it's a strange thing because um, I got a lot of love when I was in my relapse, but I got the wrong kind of love. You know, I, I, I choke sometimes that uh, I, I think there's sort of uh, and this is this is not a gender thing. Let me say this. I think I think I call the mommy love and a daddy love. The mommy love is the kind of love a mother gives a young kid. That's wonderful. It makes all the difference in the world in early. Oh, you're wonderful. You're great. Keep, you know, do that. And then daddy love is something that comes later, which is, OK, you know, all that stuff mommy told you. It's true, but you're not the center of the universe. And, and it leads to mature a mature adult and the trouble is I got a lot of mommy love when I was in my relapse and my disease loves mommy love it wants to suck in oh you told me uh, it's okay that I binge last night well good I'm going to go out and binge again tomorrow night and 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 uh, you know and I'll, it'll be that it'll be okay what I got from good sponsors I don't want to use the phrase tough love because that's not the right thing. Because trust me, I'm in another program where you have sponsors who have what they call tough love and they're really just working out their anger issues on their sponsees. You know, no, it's true. But being willing to say the truth when sometimes the truth may hurt somebody is not easy. And, and trust me, I didn't become a good sponsor here until I went to Al-Anon. <laughs> because I learned I didn't have to be loved. My job as a sponsor is to be there, to be a guide, and maybe be a friend, but to be willing to say things sometimes. And so some of the best love I've gotten at the, in the long term were things that in the short term I didn't want to hear. You know, But then there is the love. And the love... And, and the kind of sponsors who helped me, because I, I always joke I was in two different OAs. The first OA I was in, uh, you know, I, there were, of course, it's only one OA, but the OA I was in the first time was when I, was all about meetings. It was about going to meetings so I could share. You know, I'm a narcissist. That's the last thing I needed to be doing. But that's, for me at the time, uh, OA was a real good cheap group therapy. Let me come and talk about myself, talk about my problems. It, does, it didn't help me one bit. It wasn't until I came and started using the steps and the program, 
on my problems. And that was a place I didn't have a, I didn't do the good arc, I think. You know, I think there's an arc of recovery. When you come in, there's nothing better than when you come to your first OA meeting and you hear people doing things you thought you were the only one who ever did. Nobody ever took a, a thing of white bread and rolled it up into a ball, you know, and, and ate it, right? Now, I get laughs around here. If I say that to a room full of normies, they're like, what? But my people get that, right? And there's a wonderful camaraderie and getting that. But at a certain point, it has to stop just being that. And, and you know, it has to move toward the change that is involved in the steps because, you know, nothing changes if nothing changes. And and that's when things got better, when I got the sponsor who, who just did some of that tough love and told me what I needed to hear. Jack? Oh, well, Holly. Holly? <laughs> 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 Jewish white bread. <laughs> I heard, I don't usually relate to it, but for people who are um, amped, <laughs> with, with energy, yes. how have you taken on the challenge of getting still or getting quiet ah. and uh, doing kind of, uh, higher power, especially connecting to that. Yeah. Can happen in that no, it's a good point. Uh, you know, people, and Jack knows I'm an eight-side personality. How do I get still and find the, the, the thing inside? Um, it isn't easy. I tried regular meditation and I just, it was excruciating for me. And uh, either that or I'd fall asleep. <laughs> you know, one of the two. But my, my old AA sponsor came up with a great thing one day. He said, okay, here, here's what I think you should try doing, John, for meditation. Get up, make yourself a cup of coffee or tea. Don't turn on the TV. Don't turn on your computer. Take a little bit of time and look at the day. Maybe pick up one of the books, you know. You know, there's a lot of daily readers. And one of the great things about a daily reader is you'll pick it up and you read something you would never have thought to think about during the day. And invariably, how often something will come up during that day that was in that damn reading. I don't know how that happens, but it is. And the other thing that helps me now um, is uh, I have a dog. And I have to walk Lila every morning and to get out and have some still time and some quiet time and to think. And on a good day, I try and say, okay, I'm in a 12-step program. How, how am I going to live a 12-step life today? And when I do that, I find my life just, my day just goes better. You know, every occasionally I'll, I'll get up and there'll be a client problem because I have a lot of clients on the East Coast and oh my God, the, the system's down. And when I don't do that, I feel like I go through the day like I've been thrown out of the car at 30 miles an hour and all I'm trying to do is not go face down in the gravel. But if I do that, I'm the author of my day. You know, I'm the one who then can move forward on it. It's invariably better. So, yes. Adam and then Jason. How does service serve you? <laughs> service. Oh, I don't do any service at all. <laughs> there are two people in the world I know. Myself and Tony, who used to sit there, who's now in Wisconsin. Hi, Tony, if you're listening. Uh, Tony and I are the only two people I know whose sponsors told them to do less service. <laughs> But I, you know, it's the great thing about, uh, you know, when I first came in, I was so cynical. Oh, they were talking about service. They just want free labor, you know, and things like that. So many things in program, so many things in program, you are front, you don't understand when you're going through them. You have to get through them and look backwards and realize how important they were. And service was one of them. So I didn't understand. And it wasn't until I did some service and did selfless service that I got and turned around and looked backwards and realized, oh, yeah. I feel good that I did that. I didn't do it with any expectation of recompense or anything like that. I felt better. And, and then it starts to build. And you, you do like that. Hey, you know, I like helping John make the coffee on Saturdays, you know, when I'm in town, you know. Um, or other things. We're getting birthday party this weekend, upcoming weekend. 
you know, many hours on that and on these other things. But it's about, it actually does help me, you know. There's a great reading that we have just for today. And one of the things in just for today is just for today I'll do someone a good turn and not get found out. And it took me a long time to understand what that was about. That builds self-esteem. That, you know, that's a self-esteem builder. You're doing things for do, doing good purposes, not to get up and go, look how wonderful I am, you know? And, and so that's what works for me. Jason? Just out of curiosity, <laughs> if you talk about steps through <laughs> Thanks, I'll, I'll get your money to you after the meeting. Um, well, no, you, you know, for me, the, I always tell sponsees, steps four and five, I, th- that there's 12 discrete steps. There is no step four or five. There's no step eight, nine. That step four, to me, was about getting this stuff out for me to look at. And I tell sponsees, you can give your, your fifth step to anybody. I've given one to a therapist. I know people give them to clergymen. It does not have to go to your sponsor. And that's so important because you need to do a fourth step with no eye on who you're going to give it to or you will invariably censor yourself. It's about getting the stuff out for you to look at. And then a fifth step. I'll tell you, I did one with a therapist. It was one of the best things I ever did because I'd be reading him stuff about my childhood and he'd go, now do you see how you're still doing that here? It was wonderful to have that kind of thing. And so, so that helped a lot. Um, for me, uh, you know, to day in and day out now, six and seven or so, the more, way more important than any other steps for me. I think if you get to a certain point, I mean, I always joke, well, you know, the, the big book came out when they, they had less than five years of sobriety, so that's why there's, there's one paragraph for six and one paragraph for seven, you know? And the, the paragraph for seven is mostly the seven-step prayer, you know? Because you don't realize how important it is. But, you know, when you do that, the, the fourth step, and I'm really a believer in doing it the way page 65 in the big book says, you know, there's, I was in a program where he did 180 questions. And, you know, it was sort of interesting, but the trouble is you do that kind of thing and you use the part of your brain that you, like, use to study for the SATs. And as soon as it's done, it's gone. But with this, I was able to look at my, my, my thing and look at the, uh, the, col- the extra column I wrote about what's my part in it. And my part in it, I always tell sponsors, hey, if you can do it on a spreadsheet, you can get, the neat thing is to be able to sort on that last column and see the pattern, ego, 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 you know, this, that, and the other. But then that becomes the basis for, you know, step six and, and seven, to be able to look at the things that are my thing. We used to, there was a lady who uh, used to be at the log cabin, she moved out of town, who used to walk around with a card she had printed up with her t- ten top character defects, and she'd pull it out of, her, out of her pocket like once a day at least at work to just remind herself. And, and you know, for me... You know, my, uh, you know, like fear. I mean, I think if you scrape down on every character defect, you get to fear, you know. Because, you know, I'm a guy. We, we like the macho one, which is anger, right? You know. But if you scrape anger, it's a secondary emotion. It's always oh, on top of fear or hurt, right? And, and, and then some people, they can't even get angry, so they become depressed. They have to scrape away depression to get to anger to then get to the fear and the hurt. And like, you know procrastination was one of my, my worst, you know. I heard somebody say once, you know, they have that phrase, faith without works is death, uh, dead. Well, um, somebody said, uh, plans without action is fantasy. And that one really hit me because I thought of all these plans I have, are they plans or are they fantasy, you know? And that really helped. But then I'm also, I mean, my two major ones are immaturity 
You know, over in the other program, they'll talk about the alcoholic personality. Now, it's not an alcoholic. It's, it's an immature personality, right? You know, I want what I want what I want. That's the part for this disease, you know? I, I used to have a sponsee who, you know, I was quoting more about alcoholism one day where it's, uh, you know, it says, it's the great desire of every, uh, you know, compulsive eater to someday eat like a normal person. He went, no, we don't. We don't want to eat like the kind of person who gets a piece of cake at where the restaurant takes one bite and goes, oh, that's too rich. <laughs> right? No. <laughs> No, we want to eat the way we want to eat and have none of the, you know, the ill effects. And the maturity that came... Ray from the Valley has one of my favorite things. He gets up and he says, my abstinence is I eat whatever I want, whenever I want, as much as I want, if I'm willing to pay the price. And today I'm not, so I eat three-weighed measured meals, nothing in between except diet soda. The point is, is at some point I had to take ownership of that because there's going to be food out forever. You know, my disease wants to keep, oh, you poor thing, you don't get to eat this. Oh, look, they came out with new kinds of reasons, you know. Uh, <laughs> the trouble is that my disease holds up a balance sheet with one side whited out. It only says, oh, look at this, you don't get this and you don't get to eat that. You know? But it doesn't hold up the one side, oh, look, you poor thing, you don't get to walk up three, three steps and be out of, out of breath. You don't wear out the pants in your crotch because your thighs rub together. You don't sit alone on a Saturday night because nobody would want to have anything to do with you. You know, that's what my disease wants to only show me the other side. And, and, and then the other thing is narcissism or, you know, self-centeredness that, you know, as they talk about, you know, and, and, and that's where it, I have, it has to stop being about me. And that's what this program talks about. And I, I haven't had a chance to talk a lot about a higher power, obviously. Oh, you held up five minutes again. Good job. I get another five minutes. <laughs> Don't I? Don't. Didn't you give me one of those already? Yes. What? Oh, that's right. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's the great thing about getting to a certain age. The Alzheimer's kicks in. <laughs> great thing about Alzheimer's, you meet new people every day. Um, the, um, uh, where was I talking about? I need some help. <laughs> See, there's a perfect example. What? Oh, God, yeah, that I haven't, you know, I, I had to come to a different belief in a higher power. You know, I came from a very dogmatic religion with the, this is the way it is, and I, I, that just wasn't going to work for me. Nor a male God. You know, I come from uh, two lines of angry Irish nasty alcoholics, so a male God was just not going to work for me. And I had to change it, you know. And I tell people, I said, no matter what you believe in a higher power, you probably think it's been around since before 1935, right? Well, guess what? People were dying without hope of, of alcoholism until 1935. And they included priests, ministers, rabbis, cantors, nuns, all of whom I've met in this program. In fact, I'm, I'm doing a thing at the birthday party with a priest and a minister. I tried to get the rabbi, but she was out of town. Um, but the point is, is, if it was simply a matter of a conscious contact with a higher power, they would not have had to come here. And so for me, the first faith I got was the faith in this program. Now, I believe that this is... I always said I believe the 12 steps are God's gift to the 20th century. You know, I believe if you read the history of AA and you can believe, not believe in a higher power when you're done, that a guy in Switzerland who goes to see Carl Jung ends up coming to New York, meets a guy in New York, meets another friend, they go up to, they go up to, uh, to Vermont, they meet up with a, but a guy who and ends up being a friend of Bill Wilson, they end up back down here, Bill ends up in, in Akron, that, that's God playing chess as far as I'm concerned, right? 
And I, so I believe in a higher power today. And the other thing is I've had to change how I feel about a higher power because my ideas of higher power were, well, first of all, it was Santa Claus. You know, give me everything on my list, God, and then I'll believe in you. But then I want all the answers to the universe explained to me before I'll believe in it. Well, again, I remember my poor, poor first sponsor in the other program. Well, how can there be a God if there's a Holocaust? How can there be a God if there's this and that? And, and he looked at me and said, well, if you knew that, you'd be God, right? <laughs> and I wanted to smack him, but he was right. I don't know the big picture. I, I can't make my understanding of everything in the world the condition on believing in a higher power. And today I don't. You know, I just know there's a higher power out there. It's not me. That's the most important thing. It isn't as important, I think, that you believe in any particular kind of higher power, but that you believe you are the lesser power. And that took me a long time to get to, to realize, you know what, i gotta, I got to have some kind of belief. And today, I do have a belief. And, and my main belief is really that everything's working out exactly the way it's supposed to. You know, somebody posted on one of the AA uh, Facebook pages this morning about how do you handle disappointment. And I said, well, you know, the, the good thing about getting to my age is you've had a lifetime to look backwards at all the disappointments you've had. And you realize that 90 plus percent of them were things that you're really happy now they didn't happen. You know, or if they were disappointing, you could follow a thread and realize where it went to. You know, I mean, I, I remember I was in a meeting once and, and somebody said, oh, I'm up for this job and pray that I get it. No, I'm not. I'm not going to pray that you get it. I, I don't know what's right for me. I sure as hell don't know what's right for you. I mean, what if you do get that job and it's the worst job you've ever had in your life? And the best job you were ever going to get in your life was going to happen next week. But because you took that job, you didn't get that job. And that's why I can look back now and realize that, you know, for me, uh, the higher power, I don't have the big picture. I just have trust that everything's going to work out. I may not like it, but it's happening exactly the way it's supposed to. I think we've got time for one. Yes, you and the new guy. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about, you mentioned the uh, salesman yes. that you had and the disease being between the years. Self-talk mm-hmm. is part of the disease. How, <laughs> that, that balance, right? Yeah. Yeah, self-talk, it's hard because, I, you know, one of the problems, and again, with this prayer and meditation, when I was in my relapse, you know, I, I can pray and then meditate, and I don't know whether I'm hearing the voice of my higher power or I'm hearing the voice of my disease just doing a really good impression of my higher power. And I have to, you know, that's why I'm a great believer. You know, in, in the second uh, step in the AA 12 and 12, it says going alone with spiritual matters is dangerous. That I need a God squad. I need it, you know, because I, I always joke, you, some of you guys have heard this before. I said, me and God can go, I can go to a mountaintop and commune with God and come down convinced that chocolate's a vegetable. <laughs> then I call my sponsor and he's like, eh, for today, no. But that's, I need that grounded out. I need that grounded out spirituality of a 12 step program. Another five minutes? No? I'm sorry. If you hold up that way, that means... <laughs> but anyway, for me, and, and just the self-love, I do, and I'll wrap up, I have to realize I have a lifetime of, of, of having to change that. You know, I used to always roll my eyes at, at like, uh, what do they call it, positive affirmations, which I got the trifecta of cynicism. I'm an alcoholic comedian from New York, okay? So when I heard that, I would roll my eyes. But you know what? I had no trouble buying the negative affirmations that were in my head all the time. Hook, line, and sinker. And I had a lifetime of that. And there's only one way I'm going to change that is that's a repattern by trying to talk better to myself. And to remember, sometimes it's going to be my disease and I can go, well, thanks for sharing. Anyway, thanks for letting me share.
Okay, um, now it's time for the Secretary's announcements. Hi everybody, my name is Ben, I'm your co-secretary. Hey Ben. Please help me in thanking John for... Um, hey. 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 